Hey, wasn't that great? You know, this particular video is being shown at each one of these churches today. You know, I, these uh, pastors are friends of mine. I've had a meal with them, and they're all good men. Even Daniel Mendoza, who made fun of me because I'm a Bruin. You know, I'm so grateful that we're in a city where the churches don't necessarily compete, but we really are rooting for each other in the gospel. So uh, let's, let's be blessed and let's continue to pray. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I think all of us, even, our, even the introverts, are getting kind of tired of the lockdown. And I don't know if it's safe to come out, but I'm just going to declare or I'm going to poll the, the audience in the room if it's okay for pastors to start telling jokes. You know, I've polled the, the people in the room and no one objects. So uh, I'm going to start telling jokes. Uh, the problem is that I'm not very funny, so what I'm going to do is, uh, from the internet, there's a restaurant in Texas that had these funny signs. I want to share some of them with you, especially during the quarantine. Uh, the first one, what a day. Nothing happened, and I was tired. Um, yeah, you know, that's uh, how a lot of us are feeling. We seem to be doing less, and we're just, just more tired. Secondly, at least we don't have to hunt for our food. I don't even know where tacos live. You know, most of uh, the time when we go out, we wear our mask and pretend like we're going on an adventure. Uh, third, just told my kids I'm older than Google. They think I'm joking. Kids, Google how old is Google. And then turn to your parents and ask them how old they are. Trust me, your parents are older than Google. Fourthly, if you see me talking to myself this week, I'm having a parent-teacher conference. Uh, I heard this is real, right, for those of you who are trying to homeschool. And lastly, I tested positive for missing my homies. And I think that's how a lot of us are feeling right now. You know, though we can't gather together physically, I'm so glad that we are together in this Why We Believe series where we try to answer questions that Christians have about the faith and questions that skeptics have about the faith. You know, the question that I'm going to try to tackle today is uh, whether science and faith are incompatible. Because nowadays, we believe that they are mutually exclusive and that those outside of the church look at those who are in the church and, and believe that Christians are in some ways foolish, naive. You know, it's interesting because our passage for today addresses that question exactly. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. It begins, for the word of the cross is folly or foolish to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are 
called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It begins by, uh, with the question or the, the problem that many people believe that the word of the cross is folly or foolish. It then talks about three categories of people. Uh, it talks about the Jews who believe that, uh, that the cross is a stumbling block. The, those who are from the east, the Jews, believe that, um, that it's, it's offensive. There's another category of people, the Greeks, who believe that the cross or the message of the cross is foolish, it's naive. And that there's a third category of people who believe. Uh, I, I want to divide this message up into three uh, the responses to the cross, some uh, stumble over the cross, some laugh at the cross, and some kneel at the cross. The first category of people are people who stumble at the cross. Paul is writing to a church in which there's a large contingency of Jews. And the Jews were, a, in a way, superstitious group of people. They were also people who've uh, gotten used to being occupied, suffering, and like Moses, some centuries ago, liberated the Jews from Egyptian captivity. They had been waiting for a liberator, a Christ figure to come and liberate them, save them from the Roman Empire with series of miracles, signs, supernatural acts. And, and if you look at the history of Israel during the occupation, they, they were oftentimes swayed by those who claimed to have supernatural powers only to be disappointed. And when Jesus came to the scene, they asked for signs, and Jesus did many signs. He healed, he uh, multiplied food, he calmed the storms. But, but they weren't enough, and eventually when the religious leaders continued to test Jesus, he said, I will no longer give you any more signs except the sign of, the, of Jonah or the sign of the cross, which signified that he will die and rise again on the third day. But this was immensely problematic for the Jews because they've been waiting for someone to do miracles, someone with power to overthrow the Roman government, not to succumb to them. And so the idea, the idea of a, a savior who would be executed was scandalous, laughable, offensive to them. You know, uh, even in our culture today, uh, uh, most people know that there's a problem with humanity. But if you think about it, as a Christian, if we go to our college campuses, unless you're a Biola student, or we go to our work, whether we work in journalism or a media or a law firm, and we tell people, I am an evangelical Christian, and a part of what we believe is that the problem that humanity has is with sin, and the solution lies, listen carefully, with a white Jewish male 2,000 years ago who was executed, and we need to believe in that person. Uh, to decide our fate between heaven or hell. You know, I, I think most of us would realize that that may feel a little bit mm, 
naive to the majority culture. We are a little bit embarrassed of it. We know that in some ways our culture will uh, stumble over that. You know, our, our culture uh, dislikes social injustice, racism. We all recognize there's a problem, but they don't necessarily agree that the problem lies within them and that they need a savior who would give themselves upon the cross. Some stumble at the cross. But it's the second group of people that I want to spend the majority time with, and uh, it's the, those who laugh at the cross. You know, the prevailing culture at the time was the Greco-Roman Empire, uh, which was largely a, a Hellenized culture. The Greeks were known, uh, among many things, for wisdom. They loved wisdom or philosophy. And um, the, some of the most well-known philosophers, even still today, were the Greek philosophers, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. We still study them today. When Paul went to Athens uh, to preach in Acts chapter 17, it says that some of the Epicureans and uh, Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And so knowing that the Greek empire and many within the Corinthian church and those surrounding them, the thing that they loved and valued really the most was knowledge. Paul says that Greeks seek wisdom or sophos. And to proclaim that this Jewish male was the crux of Christianity he recognized that this is probably going to be problematic for them. To say that Christ crucified was uh, something that he recognized that Jew the Gentiles would consider folly. You know, um, oftentimes we give human knowledge way too much credit. We uh, value it too much, and we underestimate that which we don't have. And I, I know that we, even the smartest of people, know that our ability to know and understand is limited. Um, after all, for example, we know that our knowledge is subjective, that we believe what we want to believe, and we don't necessarily uh, want to hold on to things that make us uncomfortable. We know that we have uh, selective knowledge. We have confirmation bias. We uh, pile on evidences that support what we want to believe, and we just kind of ignore those things that don't support uh, those things that we want to hold on to. We know that we have ambiguous knowledge, that even those things that we hold to be true, that it's not precise. And we know that we have changing knowledge, that what uh, scientists believed was absolutely true 100 years ago, uh, that we know that they're not true anymore. I wonder how many of those things that the scientific community believes is absolutely true today will be found to be not true 100 years from now. But I believe perhaps the three most dangerous assumptions that uh, our culture has about human knowledge are, is that 
we believe that human knowledge is infallible, we believe that human knowledge is exhaustive, and we believe that human knowledge is exclusive. Uh, first pitfall that we fall into is that we believe that human knowledge is infallible. And what I mean by this is this. We believe that uh, intellect, our conclusions, our reason, is the final arbiter of what is true. And that um, if we examine something, conclude something, and conclude collectively as a human race, or, or at least the intellects uh, of the human race, or a large portion of them agree that this is true, that it must correspond with reality. Our reason tells us, yes, so we think it is true. Uh, we, we kind of assume that we have the ability to answer correctly um, all the questions that we have. And I believe this is a, a false assumption. We fail to admit that our ability to understand is limited by our human limitations. In 1982, uh, a book called Critical Path estimated that up until 1900, human knowledge doubled approximately every century. In 1945, it was doubling every 25 years. In 1982, knowledge, information, doubled approximately every year. In IBM estimates now that human knowledge doubles about every 12 hours. We know more than ever before and our knowledge is continuing to pile up. But where this, has that gotten us? John MacArthur writes correctly, we are more educated than our forefathers, but we are not more moral. We have more means of helping each other, but we are less, not less selfish. We have more means of communication, but we do not understand each other any better. We have more psychology and education, but more crime and more war. We have not changed except in finding more ways to express and excuse our human nature. Throughout history, human wisdom has never basically changed and has never solved the basic problems of man. You know, we fall into this trap that we have the ability to know as much as the breadth of the, and depth of the universe. But in reality, we are limited by our humanity. Yeah, and, and it's true that there are certain human beings who have greater intellectual capacity than others, but still, they're within the subset of the human race. And that is why Paul writes in verse, uh, writes, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart, verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the sage? Has uh, not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? We're still limited by the subset of the human race. You know, what if the smartest of all the scientists gathered together and concluded without a shadow of a doubt that the smallest a uh, particle in the universe in existence is the atom. That's what everyone believed, but no one believes that anymore. All of humanity had it wrong. You know, um, 
when I was little, probably a preschooler, uh, I lived in Korea, and my grandfather was one of the few people in his block that owned the television set. And obviously, it was not a flat screen TV. Uh, it was a black and white TV with a cathode ray tube technology, meaning it was in a box. And there, I don't remember watching any show except this one show called Combat. It was like a war series. And every time that came on, and it was in English, uh, I didn't understand, but I, I sat in front of it to watch soldiers uh, ride jeeps and go into battle with guns, and I was fascinated as a little boy. And of course, I didn't understand TV technology, but you know what I believed as a little preschooler? That once a week during this particular 30-minute period, that these figures woke up, came to life, rode into the little jeeps and, and, you know, and ran around with guns within this box, and I was able to peer into it. And I remember thinking as a boy, I would love to take out those little soldiers and the trucks and play with it myself. Now, you know, was I stupid or naive? You know, maybe compared to uh, other preschoolers, I was average or above average. But compared to those who understood technology, I was completely naive. You know, it's interesting that we believe that we have the capacity to know when we are limited by our own humanity. I, I think another reason why uh, we fall into this human arrogance is because we believe that human knowledge is exhaustive. That we have the arrogance to say that we have the ability to know everything there is to know, meaning that uh, we've not only answered all the questions that we could ask, but we've asked all the questions that, that could be asked. You know, if you think about it for a moment, you'll come to realize how arrogant that thought is. You know, for, um, there, there are many things outside of our ability to understand, measure, or even ask questions about but they're still real. You know, for example, uh, we cannot hear certain things because of the frequency, but dogs can hear. Uh, we cannot see with our eyes certain things until a, uh, you, put a, you put a UV light over it. And there are things that we can't touch or see or feel, but uh, electromagnetic waves or radiation are realities. And those are things that human beings, the smartest of people, didn't know existed until recently in human history. What if there are whole realities out there that we didn't even know existed because we've never discovered it or it's beyond our ability to observe and understand? And let me give you an example. Suppose uh, you were born without sight, and someone had to describe to you the color red. And that person could try their best to try to explain to you that red is like an apple or a dress or a lipstick. But that would be meaningless to you because you've never experienced color or sight. You know, and I wonder, if there is a possibility, there are so many things outside of our capacity and ability because 
they're in categories that we've never experienced or seen. Verse 21 says that the world did not know God through wisdom. God was able to be seen or measured um, or understood only by God, but not our faculties. 1 Timothy 6.16 says that God alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can seize. And one of the reasons is, John 4.24, God is spirit. The ability to see, hear, taste, and touch God lies in a different realm a spiritual realm, and it is interesting, when God created life, the only creature in which he created um, differently was man. He created man in his own image. I believe a spiritual being. The third uh, stumbling block for us is that we, um, our human knowledge is exclusive. One of the things that we believe oftentimes is that, uh, that faith and knowledge or science are, uh, are inc- uh, incompatible with one another. That we either accept one and reject the other or reject one and uh, accept the other. That we believe our answers to the questions that we have exclude questions that we don't have or answers that contradict us. You know, um, let me give you an example, in scientific knowledge, this is how it kind of goes. Uh, we ob- uh, they observe things and they postulate and they uh, postulate and continue to repeat observances until they come to conclude, okay, this is true. For example, if you have five loaves of bread and you eat five loaves, you have how many lo- uh, loaves left? You have zero, right? And let's say scientists repeat that a hundred times. You have five loaves of bread, you eat five loaves, and you end up with zero loaves. And they do that a hundred times, and every single time, five minus five equals zero, correct? Okay, you're following that, right? And so scientists will conclude that uh, if you have five and you take away five, it's zero, always zero, and anything outside of that is a lie or cannot happen or it is impossible. They cannot accept the idea that five loaves minus five loaves equals 12 baskets of bread according to the will of God when he is at work. Science rightly has to say uh, that in what they do in normal course of the universe um, that God is not intervening, but that does not necessarily mean that God doesn't intervene. You know, in the area of discussion where they believe, uh, a lot of people believe that uh, science especially contradicts faith is in two theories. The theory of the Big Bang and the theory of evolution. They both postulate with good intention the beginnings of the universe and the beginning of life apart from an intelligent creator. Big Bang Theory says that the universe had a definite beginning. Time began only when the Big Bang began. Though the laws of physics had always existed. The theory of evolution says that life evolved from a very simple to a more complex categories of life through different eras. You know, without getting boxed in uh, by 
what it means, uh, uh, what Genesis means when it says day. Uh, is it a literal day or is it a figurative day as oftentimes poetic languages do? Uh, what does Genesis chapter 1 kind of say about creation? Genesis 1, 3, and 4, God said, let there be light and there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated light from darkness. And it continues that God creates the formation of the bodies and the universe. And I don't know about you. It sounds like the formation of the universe through a singular point. How do you separate light from darkness? Life shows up in day three or verse 11, and, and, and God speaks in verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetations, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. Verse 20, Day five was the creation of creatures in the water and sea. Let the waters uh, swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Verse 24, day six describes a unique creation of a more complex creatures, uh, mammals, uh, including human beings. I don't know about you, but these kind of sound like what scientists often describe as the Big Bang and limited evolution, but with an intelligent designer, with uh, spontaneous creation and such. You know what I, I think is that oftentimes science helps clarifies what the scripture is saying and the scripture uh, is giving guidance to what scientists have been looking for. And I, I don't know if they're incompatible. You know, thousands of years ago when, uh, when the ancient writers penned Genesis chapter 1. How did that person understand the laws of physics and to say that the first beginning began with light, light that has the property of mass and wave, energy, has a constant speed, is on the realm of different waves that describe so many other things. If there's a third category of people that Paul talks about, it's this category that I would want you to consider. Some kneel at the cross. You know, I, I think for a lot of uh, people's experience, you know, if we are not to simply ask for signs or, or uh, ask for reasons, um, or, or is it wrong to do so? No, no, I, I don't think it's wrong. In fact, God wants us to reason. God uh, wants to, uh, us to use our fa uh, intellectual faculties to seek him. But in verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He said the, the collective wisdom the, of human wisdom is still uh, pales in comparison to even the foolishness of God. And the beginning of wisdom uh, is the fear of God, or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And when Job searched for wisdom in his battle with suffering, God did not necessarily reason with him, but showed him the universe and said, were you there in the beginning? What is our greatest barrier 
to understanding God? Is it really intelligence or reason? And, and, and I want to challenge us here. Using our intelligence or the mind that God has given to us, what is more reasonable to think that our ability to know and understand is perfect or maybe imperfect or limited? Um, is it that our ability to understand and know um, covers all of the arena of knowledge that could ever exist, or perhaps there are many, many arenas that we can't even see or imagine. What is more reasonable to understand? That there's a hard line between what, what science is and, and, what, and areas that we don't understand, or is there uh, a merging of the two that kind of helps to explain one another? I don't know about you, but for me, uh, the reasonable thing is to understand that we are uh, more limited than we think, that there are areas that we don't quite understand, and that perhaps there's a, a supernatural spiritual side that can fill in the blanks for us. You know, the, the reason why, though, so many people have a difficult time with this it's not necessarily because of reason, but because of two other things. I believe it's arrogance, but also pride of life. They think they know. We think we know. And secondly, I hate to say this, but lust. Because if we conclude that there is a, a God, a moral lawgiver, we're held responsible for that. And we don't want to accept that. So living hope, and for all of you who are watching today, the science and faith, are they compatible or incompatible? You know, I don't believe we can prove one way or another, but I want to say to you that if we just open ourselves up, if we understand there's more to us in our bodies and our minds, there's, that we're created as spiritual creatures, and that perhaps we can see better if we're willing to humble ourselves, if we're willing to truly be open-minded, if we're willing to allow, if there is a God, to speak into the spiritual side of us and really seek him, that perhaps you and I will see that transcendent God better. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you've called us not only to love you with all our hearts, heart and soul, but with our minds as well. And as we seek you with our minds, may you speak into our spirit and soul as well. I pray this for every single person uh, uh, worshiping together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.